this year, this school year, we've been uh, walking through a series called Not My Will. We've been following Jesus on his final journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. So this has been in Luke's Gospel, Luke 9 through 19, more or less. And, uh, and if you want to follow along with the scripture this morning, it's on page 875 of your pew Bible. It's Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. So again, I'm about to read the text. As I'm about to read the text here, um, there, are, there are two themes, okay? There are two themes that are actually themes throughout this whole section of Luke and throughout the Luke's gospel as whole. And, and there are two themes that touch on two key aspects of life. The first aspect of life is money. And the second key aspect of life is community. And throughout this whole section, Jesus, when he speaks of money, he calls us to generosity. And when he speaks of community, he calls us to hospitality. You got that? Generosity and hospitality. And it's in this text that these two ideas, generosity and hospitality, they come together. They come together. This is an amazing text. This is one of those stories that just boggles your mind. It's a story, it's sort of vintage Jesus, and I'll show why that is in a second here. But before we actually read the passage itself, I want to just sort of place it in context, all right, with the context of the larger story here. So if you want to look back to chapter 15, we, we covered that three weeks ago before we got into Palm Sunday and, and Easter Sunday. In chapter 15, uh, we, we see this, these beautiful stories that many of you are familiar with. But I want to read just the first two verses of chapter 15, because that's actually the context, the setting, the situation in which we find ourselves in chapter 16 still. And we read these words in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that is to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, they muttered, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. You could translate it, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay? And Jesus, so, so the idea here is that Jesus is hanging out, as we talked about three, three Sundays ago, Jesus is hanging out with the problem people. The people that you and I would not want to be around. Think of them the most difficult, the most annoying the most stubborn people, the people who have just specialized in sabotaging their own lives, sabotaging their relationships. Jesus is spending time with them, the sinners, the sellouts, the screw-ups. These were the weak links among God's people. These weren't even people who were like out there, the pagans. These are the people on the inside who just used to think, you know, I hope that person doesn't come up and say something to me after church. I don't want to spend time with, I don't want to be around them. I just don't like them. Everything about you just sort of bristles. See, Jesus was hanging out with the problem people. Again, these were the weak links among God's people, the people who were dragging God's people down. And here's Jesus spending time with them, investing in them, not immediately calling them out, not immediately confronting them, See, for the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they, they, were like, they were like, how could he just hang out with them like this? He should be refusing to be seen with them. He should be refusing to eat with them. We haven't been sinners like they have. We haven't sold out like they have. We haven't screwed up like they have. It's not fair. It's infuriatingly unfair. And in response to that, Jesus tells three stories that are actually one story. And in a sense, they're true stories. 
How could that be? These are parables. How can they be true stories? Because they're true stories in the sense that they, they, each and every one of the stories tells the single story of God's people, the people of Israel. See, in the Old Testament, God's people are often portrayed as sheep. They're often portrayed as a treasured possession or a coin. They're often portrayed as a son. And Jesus is retelling the story of, of Israel, of God's people. And it's a story, are you ready, ready for this? It's a story of radical unfairness, of God never treating his people as they deserved. See, Jesus turns to the Pharisees who are saying, that's not fair that you're spending time with them, that you're doing this with them. You need to, they need to be treated as they deserve. And Jesus says, oh, really? It's in fact the story of Israel, the story of God's people is a story of actually of when God never treating his people as they deserved. It's a very difficult, Old Testament's a very difficult story to read. In fact, I think I may have shared this three weeks ago, one of, um, one of my former co-workers when I was in the Air Force talked about how as a high schooler, as he just grew up Catholic and he finally got around, he said, you know, I'm gonna, they always talk about the Bible at church, Catholic church, I'm actually gonna sit down and read it myself. And he started reading through it and he got through about the first four or five books, which is pretty impressive until he got sick of it. You know when he got sick of it? He says, because the, the protagonists, the good guys, are jerks. And he's right, aren't they? They're jerks. God's people are so often the people that you're thinking, hey, I can't believe God would want to associate with people like this. See, Jesus hung out with tax collectors and sinners with the problem people because that's why he came. He came to welcome all the wrong people to never treat anyone fairly, to never treat anyone as they deserved. So here's the idea as we move into chapter 16. When it came to the problem people, the Pharisees were willing to invest nothing. And it's in chapter 16 that Jesus turns to his disciples and says, when it comes to the problem people, you're to invest everything. That's a very hard message to hear. In fact, he calls them, this is what I want you to hear this morning, this is our, our theme, that Jesus says this, use your wealth to win, you ready for this? Friends. Use your wealth to win friends, but a certain kind of friend, the friendless friend. Use your wealth to win friendless friends and therefore your father's welcome. There's a certain way to use wealth that wins our father's welcome. That may astonish you. That may almost sound scandalous doctrinally. This is exactly what it says. This is a scandalous passage. And it's, it's, again, it's, just, it's, just, it's exactly who Jesus is. So let's listen to this text. This is the word of the Lord taken from Luke chapter 16. We read these, these words. He, that is Jesus, also said to his disciples. See, the last three, the, the, all of chapter 15 was spoken directly to the Pharisees. Now he's turning to his disciples. And he tells the following story. He also said to his disciples, that is to, to, those, to his followers, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him, were brought to the rich man, that this man, this manager, was wasting his possessions. And the rich man called the manager and said to him, What is this I, that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, 
for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me. Now that word receive, we've heard that already. Ring the chapter 15, the, the, the Pharisees were complaining that Jesus what? That he received or he welcomed uh, sinners and tax collectors. So verse 4 again, I have decided what to do so that when I am, re- I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, verse 5, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe, your, owe, your, owe my master? The man replied, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said, he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. There's that word again, receive. Verse 10, one who is faithful in very little, says Jesus, is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little, in a very little, is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you true the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The word of the Lord. Now, this parable, again, is it's just in some ways quintessential Jesus. If you think that Jesus is simply a moral teacher, this passage will, will sort of break the bank on that. It was just, it just, Jesus it does not fit here, uh, the, the category of a moral teacher. Okay, Jesus is actually, are you ready for this? Jesus is actually much more like an apocalyptic wise man. Okay, he's a wise man in the sense that he appeals to the real world. He says, let me tell you how the world really works. Not only does he appeal to the real world, but he appeals to our self-interest. He calls his listeners to do the smart thing, the shrewd thing. See, Jesus' followers are to act not according to ethics, but according to eschatology, to where the world is really going, okay? So, so listen, to this, listen, to this, listen to this, listen to this story, okay? Jesus presents us with an altogether confusing and shady business situation. You see that? Those of you in business, is business done in their way? There's always, there's always confusion. There's always chaos. There's always something not quiet. There's always wondering. There's always, the numbers are always being fudged. There's always some sort of deal going on behind the scenes. Things are always a little bit, not only just corrupt, but confusing. In fact, this business situation is one huge mess. 
And we really have no idea what's going on. Let's walk through the passage. I want to get, as we walk through the passage, I want to get a sense of two things. One, the context, but also the confusion. So look at verse, look at verse one here. So Jesus says to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And by manager, that just means in, in, in Jesus' world, again, contextually in Jesus' world, often persons who were rich, which were very, very, very few. There was no middle class in the ancient world. Those, are the, those who were wealthy or very rich, and this, this guy is incredibly rich. He's got a lot of land and a lot of dealings going on here. This rich person would actually hire or more likely have as a slave someone who was a manager, someone who actually would oversee all of his, all of his resources, Someone that, that actually, even though they were a slave, had actually significant influence and significant importance. And so this, it would be a coveted position. And that's one of the things about the ancient world is very confusing. Unlike that we think of slavery in, in the American South, slavery in the, American, in the, in the uh, ancient world was actually very different. Because you could, be a, you could have a person of this kind of influence, this kind of status, even though technically he was a slave. And it would have been a very, very envied position. Because a slave had the status of the one who represented him. Wherever he went, the seal that he had, the seal that he had on his finger that he had with him, was the seal of his master. He spoke for his master. He acted on behalf of his master. He could conduct business dealings on behalf of his master. He had the status, the name, the power of his master. And so this idea, here's this very simple story. The rich man who had a manager, we got that. But then charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. Now look in verses 1 and 2, yourself. Is the man guilty of those charges? You see there? As you read those verses, is the man guilty of those charges? We don't know. We don't really know. All we know is that apparently the rich man believes the charges, and he summons, he calls him, and he says, he says to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management. Like, you turn the books over. I need to see, I need to see the math, what's going on. Turn, turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And so whether or not he actually did it or not is still up in the air. We don't really know what's going on. Is this a, is this a suspicious, is this like a, some, someone just bad-mouthing the manager, and, and, and it's, 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 it's not, none of it's true? We're not really sure. Look at verse 3. The manager, but, it's, but it doesn't matter what's true or what's not true. The manager realizes that he's in, a, he's, in a, he's in a terrible bind. And he needs to take action. He's powerless. He has no sense of, he can't just sit there. Apparently he has no argument in his defense. And the manager says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from, away from me? And he thinks through his options. I'm not strong enough to dig. Apparently he was of small stature. And digging here probably refers to ditch digging, a very lowly, very lowest of the low sort of um, a vocation, but it's something that's something, because I'm not strong enough to dig, and he says, I'm too ashamed to beg. Just to be a beggar was, was, was just, in terms of status, even lower than that. Verse 4, I have decided what I will do, so that, listen to this, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he realized at the end of the day, it's not, a, this, is, this is, all of you in business know this, all of you in life know this, right? That at the end of the day, it's not what you know, it's, it's who you know. And so he, he knows that whatever the situation, he needs the right connections, right? That's what life is so often about. 
It's about, you know, a person advances in, in a certain, and they may be good at what they do, but the truth is what? They had the right business connections. They had, they, they had the right classmates. They went to the right high school. They went to the right college. They hung around the right bars. They hung around the right situations. And now they have connections. And he's saying here, I've got to do something very quickly so that I can have the right connections, so that I can know the right people. Okay, so verse 5. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do I owe my master? How much do you owe my master? And the man responds, 100 measures of oil, which is a significant amount of oil. That's a lot of money here we're talking. Okay? It's a lot of, um, it's a lot of uh, produce. Uh, he said to him, take, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Now, what we don't know is whether or not actually the, the, the bill was originally too high and he's reducing it. Or if it was actually this is something that he's doing wrong, or he's taking the 100, that's exactly 100, but actually he's cutting it in half, simply to, to, as, as a sort of unjust way of doing it. We don't, we don't quite know what's going on. That's the whole idea. That's the whole idea, is that it's shady here. Now, chances now there, there are different theories about what's actually going on here, especially in the sense that after we see here, in a way that often confuses commentators or confuses us as readers, in verse 8, what do we see? The master what? commended the dishonest master or manager for his shrewdness. Hey, now, whoa. Now, now, now we're really even more confused. Okay, so here's a manager commending, I'm sorry, here's the, here's the, here's the master commending the manager for, for, the, um, for, for, for what he, the shrewdness with which he's acted. Now, I don't, I don't know exactly what's going on. My guess, though, is that what he's doing is that in that the manager in, in uh, somehow some way the manager has done things in a way that make the master look bad, and what he what he what he's doing here is actually both um, saving the master's reputation so that other people are actually ingratiated and, and are are grateful for the master, and he's also I think out of his own resources replacing replacing uh, what, what's been lacking, what's been missing. I don't know that, but that's my best guess here. So basically what's happened, the, the, the master comes to me and says, wow, that was really smart. How you, you, you basically you took from your own resources, gave it back to me, repaying me back, but then also making me look really good because now all my debtors, they think I'm amazing because I'm letting them off easy. And so I think there's a, there's a lot of status issues going on here and things like that. I think the master, who could care less about right and wrong, the master says, that was a brilliant move. Well done. Okay? So no, no, the, but the takeaway, is in verse, the takeaway is in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, and then Jesus takes over. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind, their own generation, so the ESV is probably better, their own kind, than are the sons of the light. Okay, Does that, is that making sense? In other words, he's, Jesus is looking at the real business world, and he's saying, you know what? In the business world, if you're shrewd, it's about having the right connections. Is that not the case? I mean, who can argue with that? It's all about who you know. So the Jesus stands back and he says, that he asks this question. So who do you know? He steps outside of that, that basic logic 
that works in our world, in the present day world, in the world of the sons of this age, in the, you know, the, the, the world of this age, the world of, the, of, of, our, of our sort of fallen world. And says in the fallen world, everyone knows that it's about who you know. And now he takes that idea of, who, of, oh, it's about who you know, and he brings it into the kingdom of God. And he says, who's worth knowing? On whose good side do you need to be? Who do you want to welcome you into their, into their place? See what he's doing? And that's what he says in verse 9. And I tell you, listen to this, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, which to me is a very difficult phrase. He's speaking, how is he just exactly, if he's speaking, is he speaking of our money? Is he speaking of money just in general as a dirty thing? As, I mean, he's not saying it's objectively dirty, but often wealth is this very sort of deceptive thing. He's saying, take the money you've got and use it to make friends for yourselves, the kinds of friends that, so that when all the money is gone, you may be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Okay, so Jesus is actually presenting us here with, with, with a, a certain view of wealth that contrasts with how we often think of wealth today. Think of, these, think of these following three ways, three approaches that we have to money today. The first approach to money is that money is everything. And we see this all around us in our culture today. Money is everything. You just, you pursue money because money is liquid control. It's liquid happiness. It's this thing that you pursue. Money is everything. But you can also find an approach within the church, especially that says money is evil. Money is just somehow evil. You don't touch it. You just, you just sort of, it's, it's the less the better, the poorer you are, the better. And if you're, if you're wealthy, you're wrong. And it just sees money as evil. And, 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 and it just becomes something that, you, that is worthless. You also see the view that money is irrelevant. In the church today, you often see this idea that somehow money, you never talk about money. It's just kind of this touchy issue. It's we'll leave it alone. And it just really doesn't matter. Money is just a thing that's just sort of not really in, in you know, not, God doesn't really care about very much. It's just money. So money can be everything. Money can be evil or money can be irrelevant. But Jesus here, this is, this is what I want you to hear today. Jesus says that money is an instrument. It's an instrument. Okay, it's an instrument that we are to use in a way that makes friends for ourselves, but the right kind of friendships. Already in, in numerous places in Luke, Jesus has spoken again and again about befriending the friendless, about making friends with the friendless, the poor, the outsider, the nobody, the person who's the problem person, the awkward person. Jesus is all about saying, listen to this, use your wealth, use your resources in a way that you are seeking to reach the people that no one else wants to reach. Use, again, Jesus is saying, use your wealth. Use your wealth. This is, I, love, I love how he said, I love how I wrote this here. Use your wealth to win the friendless friend and thus your father's welcome. That's exactly what, what he's saying in verse 9. Make friends for yourself by, by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you or you may be received into eternal dwellings. 
Okay, so what does this look like? Let me just take a few minutes here. This is actually a very simple idea, but what does it actually look like? I've got so many examples here. I'm just going to share a few. Let me share one just from the world. Actually, this is something that even non-Christians understand re- 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 actually quite re- uh, readily because, again, they're shrewd. How many of you know who Greg Popovich is? Name Greg Popovich. Anyone know who that is? He is the... Mo- there you go. Connor does. Excellent, Connor. He, who is he, Connor? Yeah, basketball coach for the San Antonio Spurs. The most winning NBA dynasty of all time. Okay, this guy has won more games, more, more championships as a coach. My, someone might correct me, but at least in the recent, he's got seven under his belt, I think, seven NBA championships. And there was recently an ESPN article about, about um, Popovich, if I'm saying that right, Popovich? I think that's how you say his name. Those of you who are experts in NBA sports can, 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 can laughingly mock me afterward for mispronouncing it. But anyway, he's the, most winning, he's the NBA's all-time most winningest coach. And, and, and listen to this. He's an architect of, of a two-decades-long basketball dynasty. And you know what he cares about most? You know what he thinks is the secret to the success of his team? That he, in a legendary fashion, spends more. I mean, we're talking thousands of dollars in a single night getting his team together to have dinner. The team dinners of, of the San Antonio Spurs are legendary. It's all out of his own pocket. Now, again, this guy's got plenty of money, I'm sure. This is not exactly sacrificial, probably. But the point is that he is taking enormous wealth, thousands of dollars regularly, to invest in his team to, so that they can all have a meal together. Listen to this. One, one of his former players says this. I was friends with every single teammate I ever had in my time with the Spurs. That might sound far-fetched, but it's true. And those team meals were one of the biggest reasons why. This player continues to take the time to slow down and truly dine with someone in this day and age. I'm talking two or three hour dinners. You naturally connect on a different level than just on the court or in the locker room. Again, I'm still quoting. It seems like a pretty obvious way to build team chemistry, but the tricky part is getting everyone to buy in and actually want to go. Sound familiar, church? You combine amazing restaurants, continues the quote, you you combine amazing restaurants with an interesting group of teammates from a bunch of different countries, and the result is some of the best memories I have in my career. What, did you hear that? This is an NBA player saying some of the best memories were where? At a, at a table, not on the court. Because why? Here's a coach. And, and, and if, you know, if you know Popovich, you know, just from this article, it's an ESPN article, I encourage you to check it out. It's amazing because it was so amazing. As much as he's revered on the, on the basketball court, Popovich is a legend among the, some of the finest restaurants in America. This guy knows more about wine than most sommeliers. I mean, it's incredible how just how he just he loves food and loves wine, and he's using, he's investing in all of this. Why? 
because of the team. Not only because he will stay, he does it just for the wine and the food, and it's, I believe him. But he also does it because of the team chemistry. See, gang, what if we used our wealth to invest in one another? To invest, to make friends with the friendless. What if we used our wealth to to invest, not just in this community right here, but in, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, that's exactly the kind of thing that Jesus is calling us to do. So there's an example of Greg Popovich, this coach. Another, another brief example here. Me, me, I think of a, a fr- a, one of my best friends uh, went to school at Bodwin College. It's in Brunswick, Maine. And he speaks of his time there in college. Uh, we went to a small church there, and that, and that small church was a man in his 70s. He was a widower. You know, his wife had died, and he was a florist. He, had, he, did, not, he did not even have a high school education. And his, 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 um, his flower shop was, was incredibly popular. People, he knew almost everyone in the town. Everyone knew him. And even after his wife passed away, he became even more hospitable. And when my friend met him, uh, he was already a widower. He had this old, old, but very large house in the town. Um, all four of his kids had grown up. And he would have students over after church for lunch. Just week in, week out. In fact, uh, my friend says that when his parents would come, this man knew about it and say, well, have your parents stay at my house. In fact, almost everyone in the town knew of his hospitality. His house was sort of this local hub. And when people were out of work, he would say, come and stay at my home. Live for free while you you get back on, you know, sort of get back on your feet. And so he, he would just, throughout the years, he would influence student after student and person after person in the, uh, in, in, the, in, in the city, in the town where they lived, in Brunswick. And what's so amazing is that my, my friend, Jed, uh, is now a, he's now a professor of classics at Duke University. And he, everywhere he, he, he regularly travels, speaking of, of his faith to various college students throughout, throughout America. And it's amazing how often, when he goes places, he will speak Aside from all of his knowledge, all that he's learned, all about classics and the history of Western thought, he will speak of this man and speak of the impact of how this man took what little wealth he had and he made friends with the friendless. And it was a number just a few years ago that he passed away and he speaks of how literally everyone in the town showed up, a professor's uh, people from all different backgrounds showed up at his funeral. And one man says, a neighbor, a non-Christian neighbor said, he's the most Christian man I ever met. So there are just two, two examples, two small examples. I give you, and what's so much fun about ministry is you, as a pastor, you often come across people of all different levels of wealth, especially those who are, you know, maybe say they're probably average income to higher, who use their wealth in such shrewd, such selfish such beautiful ways. And when, by wealth here, Jesus isn't just merely referring to how much you have in your bank account. He's saying, what resources do you have at your disposal of time, of energy, of knowledge, and how can you put them to good use? And, and here at Good Shepherd, we've got a number of things very practically that need to be done on the grounds, facilities, and some of you have real abilities in that area. So let's just with that, let me, let me close um, just by asking this question. How many of you, I'm speaking now to those of you who profess faith in Jesus, how many of you have non-Christians, non-Christian friends in another city somewhere? 
another town or maybe another part of St. Louis. I think of almost all of you do, right? You think of people that you, people that you love dearly and you wish they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now imagine that you got an email or a text from them this afternoon. An email said this, I finally decided that I needed to think about Christianity. And so this morning, I checked out a church. In fact, it was the church of your denomination. And I showed up five minutes early, and almost no one was there. And when I got there, no one really said hi. And as the service started, the people seemed just kind of bored. And after the service was over, people got into their cliques and talked, and I slowly slipped out the door. How would that make you feel? This non-Christian friend that you have wanted to come to faith in Christ for so long. And the one time they go, this is what they see. This is what they experience. Who are we, Good Shepherd? Where are we investing with our time, with our wealth? Jesus is summoning us away from the Pharisees perspective that says, you know what, those are problem people in whom I will invest nothing. And he's calling us to say, you know those problem people, those people who are lost, those people who are hurting, those people who are just immense amount of work, the people I don't know how to help, I don't know how to fix, I don't know how to do anything, I just, I just, I just, it's overwhelming to me. Jesus is calling us to invest everything, to use our worldly wealth, to make friends with the friendless that we might ourselves be welcomed and received into eternal dwellings. Isn't that beautiful? Probably one of the climactic scenes in the Gospels may seem so anticlimactic to us. Jesus is there at the temple. He's already arrived in the last week of his life, and it's there that he's, that he's looking in the temple courts, and, he, and he's there with his disciples, and all these people, all the wealthy are throwing in all these amazing amounts of these large uh, bags of, of treasure and, and, and money into the treasury. And, and everyone's watching. Wow, just incredible. Look at that guy, how wealthy he is. Look at that, that person. He came all this way and he brought all this money. That's so amazing. And of course, whom did, to whom does Jesus look? To whom does Jesus point his followers? He points them to a widow. It was nothing but two copper coins, or however you want to translate it. Two copper coins, and she goes up and she gives everything. All that she has, she surrenders to the Lord. And Jesus says these marvelous words, I tell you the truth, she has given more than everyone else. That's why I worship Jesus. Because his economy is so different from ours. His way of viewing, he doesn't need our money. He wants our hearts. He doesn't need our affluence. He wants our allegiance. Have you surrendered to him today? Have you said, not my will. Not my will with my money, 
Not my will with my 401k. Not my will with all my abilities, my time, and my energy. I am here to welcome those whom the world has rejected. I am here to befriend the friendless. I am here to welcome others as Christ has welcomed me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we love your welcome. We are amazed by your welcome. We think of what, how Jesus was rejected on our behalf that we might be welcomed so beautifully, so wondrously into your presence. So Father, I pray this day that we indeed would pursue as we even now think of those around us who are unlovable, who are so awkward, who are so difficult, who truly are sinners, who truly sabotage their own lives and their relationships, who have hurt us deeply, and we beg you, we ask you for the vision, for the wisdom, for the strength, for the love to go into those relationships and to care and to spend lavishly, to spend in a way that is prodigal and irresponsible. Oh Lord, please, Lord Jesus, you who were rich and now became poor, you alone are the one who can enable us to do that. So Father, please, we pray that we indeed would follow in your footsteps in this area. So Father, please, we give you our lives, we give you our time, we give you our money, we give you our family, we give you our children, we give you our homes, and we ask that you would use them to enable us to welcome the friendless. Father, we love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.